Hello, this is Earl Fontanelle. You're listening to The Schwepp, the Secret History of Western Esotericism podcast, and today we're speaking with Heidi Marks, professor in the Department of Religions at the University of Manitoba in Winnipeg, and a lady who knows a thing or two about Sosapatra of Paragon. Nice to be here. Thank you, Earl. My pleasure. Thanks for joining us. Our listeners, our keenest listeners, who heard our story time episode when we talked about roughly the first half of Eunapius's uh, Lives of the Sophists and Philosophers, may remember Sosipatra. She appears in that narrative as one of the line of post-Yamblichian philosophers of note, but she's special in lots of ways. And um, as it happens, you've just published a book devoted to her, a slim little volume, Sosipatra of Pergamon, Philosopher and Oracle, in which you attempt to flesh out the pretty brief, scanty um, details we have of her life from Eunapius, with general knowledge about late antiquity and the scene and the different aspects of the life of an upper-class woman that we might expect to find yes. in the milieu that she's living in. So we can maybe say a little more about Sosipatra than we thought. Maybe the best thing to do would be to start by kind of doing a summary of her biography. Sure. Dating yes. as much as possible and, and a general cursus of her life. And then we can kind right. of dig into some details. Definitely, yes. And dates are very, very difficult to nail down in her case. We think that she was probably born sometime during the reign of Constantine, the last generation of folks who probably thought they were going to live in a polytheistic kind of world forever. This is a generation that Ed Watts talks a lot about in his book, The Final Pagan Generation. Um, and then we don't know how long she lived, so that's also difficult. She's written about in the late 4th century by Eunapius, and so deceased at that point. So dating, very difficult. We know that she was born in the area around Ephesus. Her father seems to have been quite a wealthy person because he had estates or at least one estate. And we would think that if he had an estate, he also had a home somewhere in a city like Ephesus. And um, it is on this, this estate that part of the story takes place. And the lovely thing about Eunapius is, although you know we don't have much, we have a few pages about this woman, it's actually more than we have about most women in antiquity. So it's kind of a surfeit of riches, comparatively speaking. And so in these pages, he begins by telling us a story that starts really when she's probably about five years old. Um, they're on the estate, her father and her. We don't ever hear about her mother. And they are visited by two itinerant workers who come to visit and offer themselves as vine tenders. And at the harvest time, the harvest is so bountiful that her father is really quite overwhelmed and invites these two vine tenders to dinner. And they're also strange men. They arrive wearing skins of animals and carrying large packed wallets. Turns out they're packed with books and not money, but they're not your usual itinerant workers. And so they they enjoy dinner. They're very taken with Sosipatra, as the story goes. And at dinner, they say to her father, well, if you like what we've done with your vines, leave your daughter in our care for five years on the estate. You go away. 
We'll look after her and you will be astonished by the results. And so her father does this. He leaves her in their care for five years. And when he returns, he is indeed astonished because she has become akin to a god is basically how Eunapius describes the results. Um, and at that dinner, she's able to remote view what's happened along the way, her father's journey back to the estate, how, you know, he had some trouble with his carriage and so forth. And he's astonished that she's able to do this. Uh, we don't hear much about her education by them. We just are told that she's basically inducted or initiated into some kinds of rituals. And at the end, um, her father, you know, says, well, you should just stay on, but they quietly in the night sneak off. They give their books to Sosipatra and entrust their knowledge to her. Turns out that they're probably Chaldeans because they're going off to the Western Ocean, which is sort of code for we're Chaldeans. <laughs> and then after that, Sosipatra lives basically independently until she chooses to marry. She chooses to marry a man named Eustathius, who is in the Iamblichian lineage in terms of who is taught by whom. It's one of Iamblichus's students. And um, he doesn't survive for very long, or at least they're not together for very long. At their weddings, she predicts his death in five years, but that they will also have three children. This all, according to Eunapius, comes about. And after that, she comes to Pergamum as a widow to raise her three children, and she starts a philosophy school, which she has really in the vicinity with Idesius. Idesius being the teacher of Chrysanthius, who is the teacher of Eunapius, and they kind of share students between the two schools. Students seem to be going back and forth between both Idesius and Sosipatra, and then this is how she sort of spends the rest of her life as far as we know, and we don't really have many more details than that. Great summary. Now might be a good time quickly to run through the, the sort of post-Yamblichian genealogy that we have as constructed yes. by... Um, Eunapius. So Iamblichus dies sometime around the year 333, roughly 335, something like that. And he and Eunapius mentions a bunch of his students, Sopater the Syrian, who mm -hmm. uh, went to the court of Constantine, was a valued philosophical asset to that court, but ends up being assassinated in a conspiracy against him. Idesius yeah. of Cappadocia, who is a couple times mentioned by Eunapius as sort of the leading student of Iamblichus. But he right. doesn't actually devote that much time to him, that being said, right? No, he's, he, he says <laughs> he's, he's the main guy, but anyway, let's move on. Right. But he's Iamblichus' successor, according to yeah. him. And this guy, Eustathius of Cappadocia, who ends up marrying Sospatra. Now, this guy's really interesting because he's sent on an embassy to Sapor, or Shapur, right. by Constantine. And Ammianus... Marcellinus, who who uh, our listeners may remember, is the sort of other historian who covers this era yeah. really well, who is actually on campaign with Julian, was intimately familiar with military and court life of, of this period, and was there kind of seeing stuff, and is very level-headed compared to Eunapius. Yes. So whereas Eunapius wants to write hagiography to some extent, mm -hmm. uh, Ammianus is not interested in that. He's just telling you stuff. He says... He mentions this the same embassy to Shapur, but says, you know, this guy was sent, this guy was sent, this guy was sent, and Eustathius was sent for persuasion, yes. for reasons of persuasion. Right. Now, this is interesting to me, Heidi. I wonder if you have any thoughts about this. This is a total side current, but I have to ask you. So, the Greeks and Romans 
are deeply affected by oratory, right? They have this yeah. sophistic culture. And Eunapius can't talk enough about it, right? It's, yes. When someone, he introduces someone, he says, like, the mellifluous power of their speech charmed everyone, like Orpheus. You know, it's like this, this whole lexicon of images about the power of oratory. Now, if this guy, this extremely good orator who studied with Iamblichus, is sent to Shapur, does that mean that Shapur, A, is fluent in Greek to the point where he oh. can be affected by this oratory? Yes. Or B, has a team of translators who are somehow saying to him, great king, this guy's really persuasive. Because how is that bridge going to be crossed of, right. of effective oratory that's going to like move the heart of this great king and make him you know sort of benevolent to the Roman cause across a language barrier? This is something I've really wondered about. <laughs> I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. I haven't ever thought about this before. Um, but as you probably note from reading my book, I'm, I'm quite skeptical about any and all details <laughs> in both ancient biography and ancient history. Yeah. So it's hard to really know what actually happened. And then if we want to speculate what might have happened, I imagine there would have had to have been translators. Yeah. And then, yes, if they were good translators, fine. Some of that effectiveness might have come across. But if not, who knows how that might have actually worked in the Persian context. But what I think is of great interest to us is the way in which Eunapius uh, is presenting rhetors, because by presenting them as these people who can affect political change on that scale, he's really saying something about himself. He's saying, I stand in this lineage, and uh, this is kind of the magic I can work with my words, and this is in fact what I'm doing in this work when I'm writing biography. Mm. So he certainly believes it himself in terms of the power of words in a rhetorical and philosophical context, and then is really making an argument for why it should work on his audience, you know, right. why his biography should be believable. <laughs> I know that's not an answer to your question, but uh, hopefully takes it in a direction that at least adds something. Yeah, well, it's, a, it's an unanswerable question. It's just something I've been wondering about. It has nothing to do with Sosipatra. Right. But... Let's bring our narrative to Sosipatra. So, Eunapius mentions Iamblichus at length. We've talked about the great yes. divine Iamblichus. He has a bunch of students. We've mentioned the most important of them, Sopater, Idesius, and Eustathius. There's also a couple, Theodorus of Hellas and Euphrasius of Hellas, who just disappear from the narrative. Idesius himself then has some students, one of whom is the Chrysanthius you mentioned, Chrysanthius yeah. of Sardis, who is then the teacher of Eunapius. So, Eunapius has explicitly included himself in this lineage. Yeah. And he's also this, the teacher of Maximus of Ephesus, who merits uh, an episode of his own because right. he was the teacher of the great Julian. But going back up the ladder to Eustathius, he marries Sosipatra of Pergamum. And yeah. Sosipatra kind of takes over the narrative from then on. Exactly. Yes. And really, the only other person who receives as much airtime, so to speak, is Chrysanthius. Eunapius' uh, own teacher. And you have to wonder if in some ways Eunapius isn't also claiming Sosipatra um, as a kind of teacher, even if he might have never sat in her classroom, by wedding her so closely as co-teacher with Idesius that somehow some of her specific divine wisdom has filtered down to him. It's, I think, something that he's trying to 
to write into this lineage, into this narrative to in imply. which he situates himself. Okay. Yeah. Now, the image he gives is of Pergamum as this place where during the day you take classes with Idesius and you presumably learn a lot of metaphysics and logic and physics and all that philosophical curriculum. But then when you want the more divine, more initiatory wisdom, he he really, when he talks about Sosipatra a lot, he he always uses language of the gods. She's, she is the one who knows about the gods. You go to her. So there's people doing this sort of dual curriculum and hanging out in both their houses. As someone who's spent a lot of time trying to think your way into the life of Sospatra based on the small amount of data, hard data we have, how do you envision this scene, you know? Right. It's certainly not the scene that we find in like Gore Vidal's (laughs) representation of Sospatra as this frivolous woman who um, throws dinner parties. I think that probably, well, there's a few things that might have been going on. And, you know, when I wrote this section of the book, I had to just speculate. But we know from late ancient platonic curriculum that there was there was a curriculum people read the works of plato in a certain succession in a certain order from sort of simplest to most metaphysical to most sort of transcendental we might say or esoteric or mythic we also know that people are starting to read the myths in plato allegorically especially with a focus on the divinization of the soul especially with with an eye to questions of where souls come from and how they return or where they might possibly go, um, namely the highest reaches of the cosmos. So listeners to our episodes on Porphyry's On the Cave of the Nymphs yes, will know exactly what you're talking about. That's a, a, a full example yeah. of what you're saying. Right, precisely. Um, and so they're doing this with Homer. They're doing it with the myth of Ur and Plato. They're these folks are really allegorizing in this particular vein with anything they can get their hands on, Orphic, Chaldean, Egyptian, and so forth. So I think that one way to read the difference between Odysseus and Sosipatra, students going to Odysseus in the morning to Sosipatra in the afternoon for the higher kinds of teachings, is that Odysseus might have been teaching the most basic platonic curriculum, and then Sosipatra is doing the um, more elevated work of orienting them to the kinds of thought forms that would help with the divinization of the soul. And in fact, we have one moment where we sort of see her teaching. Eunapius mentions that she's in the classroom and she's talking about this very question of where souls come from, what part of the soul is punished, and where souls might go when she has this other remote viewing episode that her kinsman, Philometer, has been in an accident. And although he's not dead, he's badly injured. So it's a moment where the whole point is that, oh, look, she can see things that are going on in other places, but we just catch this tiny glimpse of what she's teaching. And I don't think it's an accident that Eunapius has her teaching on this particular subject, namely the origin of souls and, and what can happen to them in this life and how you can get where you want to go, namely the highest reaches of the cosmos, it's which is really where her own soul is destined. <clears throat> Sorry. Yeah, she tells us that, doesn't she? In her prophecy yes. uh, to Eustathia, she says, "Yeah, you're going to die uh, in five years and you're going to go to the moon, the, the sphere of yeah. the moon. But I am probably destined for a slightly higher uh, destination. Yes. 
Now this- and that's another wonderful episode because at that moment she also is told by her god, her divine double or her, her daimon, actually the precise location of where her soul is going. Yeah. As an aside here, if we look at the eschatological material from all our Platonists, from you know mm-hmm. the earliest second century sort of flourishing with Plutarch and people like that, right down to later antiquity where we are now, it seems like it's very much a broad church. We know that... Yeah the soul leaves the body. We know that the soul ascends, but the there's a, a number of kind of details that no one seems to agree on. Uh, a, do we reincarnate as potentially animals or not? Plotinus says animals, yes. Pretty much everyone else says no, it's just humans. Secondly, can you leave the cycle of reincarnation or not? Are you stuck forever or is there a kind of like escape route? Um, thirdly, what role do the astral does the astral architecture play in right. this afterlife or in this period between lives stuff? And everyone has their own ideas about it. Um, but I wonder if in the fourth century context, this is just kind of speculating on a, yeah. on a much larger context and without much detail, but maybe it's an interesting speculation. You know, this is a period when uh, another major group of uh, religious people, namely Christians, are also trying to nail yes. out a doctrine of what happens after you die. And they have everything on the table from serial reincarnation to uh, universal (laughs) salvation to eternal damnation or salvation, depending on if you were good or bad uh, to um, sleep until the end times. And then God comes back and bodies and souls and all this kind of stuff. So it's a hot, it's a hot debate in late antiquity, basically is what I'm saying. It's huge. Yes. (laughs) And I guess the, um, the, study of this debate in people who work on patristic literature and early Christianity tends to see it as an intra-Christian matter. But I think it might be more fruitfully seen as a just a late antique question. Yeah. There's just people, no, everyone's asking agree. these questions and debating them and stuff. Yes, and, and I think that um, in earlier periods in this lineage, if we want to go all the way back to Plotinus and then his you know, the fellow students of Ammonius Saccus, and I'm a one origin kind of person. Um, okay. Just going to put that Position right out statement. there. Position statement. <laughs> yes. um, l- yeah. Listeners who are interested in the multiple origins, one origin, multiple Ammoni, one Ammoni, us question, will want to see our special episode on that, where we just basically cover all the uh, evidence and then throw our hands up in despair and say, it's just too, we just, ah. Right. Yes. But one origin. Another complicated question. But I, I think that in that period, um, you know, third century, uh, late second century, the, the conversations are far more clearly um, across what we might call religious or religious affiliation boundaries. Right. Um, they become a little bit more siloed in this century. But I think that people are still moving across schools, right? We still see a lot of people being educated by, um, you know, Christians being educated by non-Christians and vice versa. And I think they are all thinking about this. And I think that in the case of Sosipatra, Eunapius is trying to make a particular Iamblichian argument that she is one example. She's an example of a specific kind of reincarnation. Namely, she's the reincarnation of a soul that has already achieved the highest form of 
divinization possible, but is coming back as a kind of angelic or um, godlike figure to help people in this world right. through the demiurgical processes of administering the cosmos and her Chaldean teachers, for instance, their ability to both tend to vines and tend to human souls is an example of this kind of figure who understands the cosmos so thoroughly in and out that they can deal with plants, animals, rocks, minerals, angels, humans, everything. They are governors and administrators of potentially all kinds of creatures in the cosmic order. And uh, because she is their student, they've chosen her because they see in her the ability to do this because her soul is of a very specific type, namely a very specific sort of reincarnation. You know, Eunapius is not thereby giving us his view on the whole, <laughs> whole question of reincarnation, but he's at least presenting this as one possibility that he thinks can happen and does happen and explains Sosipatra to us. Right. The theurgic bodhisattvas of Yamblikos. Yes. As I've exactly. you know, sort of not very uh, precisely called them. Yeah, but but something that Yamblikos talks about specifically in um, yes. the De Mysterious, that some, some souls come back to the cosmos, even though their spiritual rank would enable them to go to a better place and just hang right. out. Right, just stay where they are. Yeah. But At they the don't, highest reaches of the cosmos. They come yeah. back as instruments of the gods to bring the power of the gods into the world to, to save yeah. us, basically. Which is really interesting, in the, again, in the context of the 4th century, because yeah. they are in some ways analogous to Christian saints, but in other ways definitely not analogous to Christian right. saints. Because yes. they are... Un, Christian saints basically are on earth, and they become sort of, I guess, receptacles for divine power through, I mean, they, they have in common this sort of like striving to, to holiness and through merit becoming a, yeah. a fit vessel for divine power. But what you get with the Platonist or the Yamblikian model is an actual ascent and return, um, sort yeah. of willed return, like I volunteer to go exactly. back to the kind cosmos. of like um, Plato's myth of the cave reinterpreted in yeah. a fourth century platonic vein. I think that's the, the text that's, um, you know, sort of at the heart of this, this yeah. mythos, yeah. whether it's, it's in the background, right? Right, um, right. And then the myth of her provides a little extra context for how this might happen, mm, <laughs> but yeah. really just confuses things even more. Never mind. With with the power of esoteric hermeneutics, you could harmonize the whole lot into one exactly. system. Exactly. <laughs> now, incidentally, on this subject of the the bodhisattvas, the um, the returning divinized spirit, and and Yunapia okay. says, I don't know if she's a daimon or a hero or what. Like you know, yeah. so he's got he's obviously got that kind of Yamblikian style of taxonomy in the back of his mind. Yes, we we kind of know what kinds of spiritual beings are out there. There's human souls, there's heroes, there's daimones, there's gods. Yeah. He, but he's, he's clearly implying that she's one of the higher uh, levels. Yes. With that in mind, we spoke with Jeremy Swist about uh, Julian and his political project. Yeah. And then I did an episode on Julian, of my reflections on Julian, the sort of aspects of the esoteric within Julian's writings. And Jeremy, who has, knows a lot about Julian... He thinks that Julian does not see himself as one of these heaven-sent divine right. uh, returners. 
And when I read Julian, I feel like he kind of must think that his mission, especially the fact that he's providentially become emperor, he kind of must see himself as one of these bodhisattvas in, in some way. Okay. Um, and Jeremy argues that he doesn't. And he, I mean, Julian does say, I'm not, I'm just a soldier. I'm just a, you know, a kind of workmanlike emperor right. doing my thing. And I feel like he's saying that out of philosophic modesty and that he must actually right. feel. Do you have a take on this question? I don't. Good answer. Um, I think, I think that it, it could go both ways. And, yeah. um, and Julian would have a lot of options. You've just, you know, listed them, right? Or um, maybe he's hoping to become one of these, mm. right? Maybe he genuinely doesn't know where he stands in the sort of cosmic hierarchy, but he knows that he has a place he wants to go. He has a job to do, um, yeah. He's got a job to do. And if he does it well, then he has a good chance of going somewhere better. But I think that, yeah, you could you could read the sources in a lot of different ways in this respect. But I do think any kind of pronouncements that he makes about himself can be read, as you've indicated, as a kind of pro forma humility that he must exhibit in these contexts. Mm. Because the Platonist holy man or holy woman never goes around saying, I'm yeah. a holy man, I'm a holy woman. They always deny no. it. They always say, no, 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 no. Don't be ridiculous. I don't do that kind of stuff. Right? With there, Yamblikos, well, there are moments where they let things slip. <laughs> well, <laughs> Plotinus yep. saying the gods ought to come to him or Iamblichus, you know, doing some little um, invocations at a hot spring, things like that. You yes. Know. But we also have Iamblichus uh, uh, levitating and his students going, whoa, you levitated. And he's saying, no, 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 no. No, I didn't. Exactly. I don't levitate yes. and I don't turn into like a golden glowing, uh, you know, no way. <laughs> <laughs> um, now we've introduced Sosipatra. She's teaching. She's a philosopher. So she is. this might cause students in a philosophy department in today's uh, university system to scratch their heads and say, what is she doing yeah. exactly? That is philosophy, but right. blatantly, that's included under what a philosopher does in late antique um, yeah. thinking. Yeah. Any comments on that? A few. Yeah. Um, I think that the fourth century, you know, understanding what it means to be a philosopher in the fourth century, I think is important. I think also important for the study of the history of philosophy, because I also don't think that you can really understand Renaissance philosophy. Can't really, under, you know, all the philosophers that you actually talk about on this show who might be read in philosophy departments in a rather truncated and reductionist way. No offense to my colleagues in some philosophy departments yeah. where, you know, the canon is pretty circumscribed and only certain parts of a person's writings are looked at or are taken in some ways out of context. I think that um, understanding what it means to be a philosopher in the fourth century can enrich our understanding of what it means to be a philosopher in a lot of periods. Is I basically the basic point I'm making. If we look at places where people are called philosophers, so I was just rereading the life of Macrina this morning because you indicated we might have a chat about her at some point too. Her brother repeatedly calls her a philosopher and she lives the life of philosophy. Although the only thing she's supposed to have ever read was scripture. Um, she does seem to know a lot about Stoics and Epicureans and <laughs> Yeah, well, other schools of philosophy. So I think her education was probably a little more well-rounded, you know, or else she received it by a divine inspiration. But that really brings me to 
my point is that um, to be a, a good philosopher, at least in this lineage, this late Platonic lineage, means that you are open to, and you have, in fact, made yourself open to divine influence and inspiration. Yeah. Direct divine influence and inspiration. Because, frankly, why wouldn't you just go to the source, right? If you believe that that the universe is constructed in such a way that there are these beings up there that have much better access to truth than we do, given our mediated um, corporeal existence, then trying to connect with them makes sense. Trying to become like them makes sense. And then once you do that, it also makes sense that you would be capable of performing miracles and harnessing the powers of the cosmos in order to do miraculous, wondrous things. So I think it's all part and parcel of the philosophical life in late antiquity, at least in this tradition, the sort of late Platonic, Iamblichian, theurgical tradition. So it's um, it's not anomalous. It's sort of par for the course. Right. So the, the way in which I would say that ritual and your your listeners are probably well aware of this, having studied Iamblichus with you intensely, the, the way in which, you know, theurgical ritual and just everyday ritual, right? Because it's all part of theurgy. All of the normal temple sacrifices, all of the kinds of things that everyday people would do in order to worship the gods and, and maintain their relationships with the gods. Um, all of that is part of the the kind of ritual program that gets you where you're going on the road to these higher truths. You can't sort of circumvent them or short circuit them because they're all by the demiurge such that you just have to sort of find the right place to, you know, put your finger in. You have to find the right ritual to connect with the right divinity to get a certain job done. But those harmonic sympathetic relationships are pre-existing, always available and it's just the, you know, the theurge and the theurgically inclined philosopher who has the best knowledge of them. But everybody else is hooking in at some point or other to them. Um, you just want somebody like Sosipatra who has the complete knowledge of all of it to help you get to the higher parts. Right. So, you know, there, in scholarship in recent years, there's been a lot of reassessment of this term theurgy and what exactly it means right. and what it meant. And yeah. it seems to me that it means different things to different authors, that this is a term that's being sure. used by different people with different agenda. Certainly that's true if you yeah. compare Iamblichus and the Pseudo-Dionysius, that's right. completely yes. ob obvious. But I think even within the Platonists, but I think it is safe to say that what Iamblichus does in the De Mysteries response to Porphyry is lay out a philosophical system in which all the rituals of popular belief and stuff, yeah. popular practice, can have have a, an effectiveness and a philosophical justification. But I think also right. Jamblichus is pointing to an elite, perhaps more solitary or more, let's say, private yep. set of practices that are theurgy proper, it seems to me. Right. Yes. And this yeah. brings us maybe in a kind of reasonably decent segue into the, the kind of late antique religious specialism that it seems to me Sosipatra is inhabiting, whereby old school temple cults, this is very Jonathan Smith, but the old right. school temple cults are being radically replaced by 
cult centered on human beings with power. We see this in the Christian cult of saints in a right. huge way, but uh, seemingly among these uh, so-called pagan holy men of late antiquity as well. Boyer by Sosipatra is the temple, just like Jamblichus right. was. And her philosophical school are, you know, the equivalent, the late antique equivalent of people going to the, the temple in the old days. And so perhaps there was a, there was sort of like a, a religious entrepreneurship going on right. where people yes. were setting up their own kind of ritual practices and their own kind of daily itinerary of stuff they were doing. Right. Yeah. I think that that's certainly happening. And I, I don't think that somebody like Sosipatra is necessarily competing explicitly with, let's say, the the kinds of civic rituals that are going on in a place like Pergamum. I imagine her to be an avid regular participant in these as a good you know, late Roman woman living in the Greek East. But that being said, we do catch glimpses of the kinds of entrepreneurial stuff that folks are doing. For instance, there's the one episode in Eunapius where Maximus goes into a temple of Hecate and makes an invocation and burns some incense. And the the statue of Hecate laughs and the torches that she's holding in her hands light on fire, much to the terror and astonishment of the other students present. And so, you know, he's basically used a temple that exists for other reasons for his own private personal uh, show of ritual, I don't know what we might want to call it, virtuosity, right? Yeah. And so there's, you know, Maximus on the one hand, who's an example. There's another example in Egypt of former temple priests basically repurposing their knowledge in these handbooks, you know, for other kind of clientele as their own authority declines. And this is a point that David Frankfurter made, you know, very long ago in one of his earlier books. So I think we see a lot of that going on. I just, I think that part of what Eunapius is trying to argue in his biography is that the path of Maximus is a dangerous one for late Roman pagans. And the path of Sosipatra, who participates as a good member of society, <laughs> doesn't coerce the gods, doesn't engage in these practices that force the gods to do things for personal gain and, um, and fame, that she's the more ideal practitioner who's going to shepherd this late Platonist lineage into a safe future, one that Eunapius doesn't any longer really see for himself. Yeah. So a missed chance, maybe. That brings us maybe to the end of Sosipatra's life. Now, her death is given short shrift by, you know, yeah. as he just says, and then yeah. she died. But yep. because she's already prophesied what's going to happen to her after death, we get the impression that she's now ascended to some kind of noetic uh, god realm exactly. and she's hanging out there. But she is survived by her sons. And we get a little interesting coda on the sons. Yes. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. She had three sons, two of which are, you know, quite unremarkable. They pursue the normal lives of sort of elite young men in this context. Uh, but her one son, Antoninus, follows his mother in her philosophical life, again, using the word philosophy and philosophical life in the late ancient sense. And he goes and he lives in a temple of Isis, or is it Serapis? I think it's Serapis, at the Knobic 
mouth of the Nile River, and he teaches philosophy there. So he learns all of the rites associated with the temple. So he becomes an expert in Egyptian hieratic arts, but also teaches philosophy. Who knows what exactly that means? It could mean, as we've noted, a lot of different things. Um, and he prophesies sort of the, the destruction of this temple before he dies, and this destruction, in fact, happens after his death. So in some ways, although his mother followed in a kind of Chaldean vein, he's returned to the Amblichian focus on Egyptian religion. Yeah. But the way that we can understand that is not that these two are, are, are diametrically opposed or in any way opposed. In fact, the wisdom of the Chaldeans, the wisdom of the Egyptians, the wisdom of the Greeks, even, you know, the Jews are really all one wisdom. And you just access it through these different ritual programs and philosophical programs. Yeah. We should throw Pythagoras in there too, by the way. Sure. So we're in, we're in a fully fledged perennialist late Platonism here. Exactly. Um, yes. And we could even call it syncretist, except that yep. that term often kind of implies the Rubs opposite. Some people the wrong way. <laughs> well, yeah. if you have syncretism, then you must have cultural purity as at the opposite end of the right. spectrum. And that just doesn't exist. So no, all right. culture is syncretist. But they, let's call it a very eclectic um, borrowing yeah. of uh, different cultural traditions and thrown all together. Yes. Now, let's talk. Let's go back to the Chaldean thing a little bit, just for a second, because yeah. we learn of Sosipatra's mysterious teachers that they, yes. first, they're not identified at all. Then when the father no. comes back and says, oh my gosh, Sosipatra, you've become clairvoyant. This is amazing. Um, it's mentioned that they are initiated into Chaldean rites. Yeah. This can mean a lot of stuff, right? It this could, could mean that they're astrologers, yeah. though that doesn't seem to be the context because Eunapius doesn't really emphasize astrology very much. It's there as, as a background concern. It's clear that, yeah. you know, Iamblichus and all his followers have some scientific interest in astrology it's part of the worldview but they're not yeah. deeply into it um per se or to not at least not to the exclusion of metaphysics but yeah. chaldeans maybe could also be a reference to the chaldean oracles it seems to me in yes. this context oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and because she has one younger and one older these two itinerant workers one is younger one is older um I suggest that he may be playing with this idea that they are the reincarnated Giuliani, like the, the two supposed writers of the Chaldean oracles themselves. I think that's in there in the background. Um, and in terms of, you know, the, the Chaldean interest in astrology, I think it's one of the sort of lower level skills insofar as that may explain their ability to get the vines to produce you know, they, they can read the heavens, understand what's going to happen in terms of the agricultural season. Uh, but it's kind of a low level demiurgical, like we're, we're going to look after the vines using this knowledge from our Chaldean lore. But what's really important is what we can do to this human soul. Mm. Um, but yes, I do think that Eunapius is, is invoking their uh, the Chaldean oracles when he calls these two Chaldeans. Yeah. And then Antoninus goes on to become some kind of Egyptian temple priest, yeah. Redux, um, stepping into maybe a derelict temple and being like, I'm the priest now. I mean, God, we can't even yeah. imagine what's going on, but it's a, right. a very striking piece of 
religious entrepreneurship by the sounds of it from how. Yes. And who knows, you know, it might have been derelict and uninhabited or rights might have been continuing in some way, certainly not as robustly as they had in the past. It's hard to imagine um, what all is going on in temples at this time and how they're being in some cases repurposed for Christian practices, but also how, you know, they might be repurposed for, for non-Christian polytheistic practices as things are changing. Hmm. I wish we knew more because I think it would be absolutely fascinating. Yeah. Uh, but certainly to use them as philosophical schools as well is an interesting thought too. Yeah. And this is one thing we see in on the Pythagorean way of life by Iamblichus is that, you know, supposedly on his account, Pythagoras always taught in temples. So he always had his students learning in temples. Probably not the actual case, but it's interesting to note that Iamblichus thought that's, you know, a good place to teach philosophy. Yeah, yeah. Pythagoras as the ideal philosopher, right? Yes. He teaches in temples. In other words, his his primary concern, as with any philo- great philosopher, is with the gods and yeah. the proper relationship exactly. with the gods. And that's what his philosophy is all about, just like yeah. Iamblichus himself. Exactly, yes. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about Ionapis's portrayal of Sosipatra and what you think he's trying to do with his portrayal right. of her. I think that part of what he's trying to do is um, counter this image that we are seeing repeatedly created by, again, male biographers of female Christian saints, of this um, woman who doesn't get married, or if she gets married, doesn't have sex, (laughs) or if she has to have sex just to have some children, has very little of it, and then forces her husband to become chaste like her, you know, so basically do your duty to society and your family, and then get on with your real life, engages in extreme forms of asceticism, is very ambivalent about wealth, and gives oodles of it away. And here I am talking about really elite Roman women like Melania the Younger, Elder, and Macrina. Yeah, who had estates and massive amounts of slaves. So exactly. they had, they could say, well, look, all I need is a room and I can give the yeah. rest of this away, you know. Right, yeah. And so Sosipatra is none of these things. Um, she's also very educated in philosophy. And as I mentioned, you know, Macrina, according to her brother Gregory, is only schooled in Christian scripture, whereas Sosipatra knows all the poets. And in fact, in Macrina's life, we hear that she would not read poetry because it was so scandalous and so full of naughty things. Or Sosipatra has full mastery of poetry, rhetoric, philosophy, and so forth from her teaching by these two teachers, these Chaldeans. So her educational path is completely different, although not so different. I mean, it's, there's a plenty of divine inspiration going on in both cases. Yeah. Um, but the subject matter, the content is extraordinarily different. Then her kind of life, she's unambivalent about marrying and having children. And then also, she's fine being a philosophy teacher. She's fine teaching not just women, but men. And in the fourth century, we are really seeing, at least in the Christian church, a real attempt to um, circumscribe the roles that women can play in leadership through various councils and um, canons so that somebody like Macrina can teach certainly women in her household about scripture, but, but that's can't it. really be teaching philosophy to men. Whereas this is something that Sosipatra seems to be doing quite unapologetically and without any sanction. 
you know, nobody is trying to stop her. So I think that Eunapius is presenting her life as a as a counterpart and a competing image. And Avril Cameron noted this very early on and basically said that Christians and pagans are competing in a, a battle of biography. And I think Eunapius is part of the battle. Mm. Uh, we're very lucky to have him in that respect because a lot of yeah. the, what will presumably have been a rich tradition of literary biography of, of all these great holy men and women of late antiquity who weren't Christians uh, will yes. have been lost for the obvious reasons that Christians weren't interested in copying it or even right. uh, actively were, you know, destroying it. Yeah. And also we can't forget that a lot of, a lot of traditions of this sort were delivered orally and preserved orally. Eunapius decides to write things down, but I think that a lot of the legends he records are ones that are in circulation in these schools. And he even makes this point at a certain juncture. He says, I've only recorded about Iamblichus, the things that I think are most reliable. There are lots of other fantastical tales. And you're thinking, oh my God, what were they? Because these are already pretty fantastic. You know, he says, well, I can only, you know, write down the ones that are credible. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a whole bunch of other legends that are lost to us, even with somebody as thorough as Eunapius. Yeah. Well, Heidi Marks, thank you so much for speaking to us about the great Cleopatra and uh, stay esoteric I will 